This is the APS China Monthly, December 2021. The Briefing Old Friend China President Xi Jinping called U.S. President Joe Biden, quote, old friend during a virtual summit where they discussed issues ranging from Taiwan to trade relations. Although the meeting did not result in any meaningful agreements or breakthroughs, it was less tense than the Alaska summit held earlier this year. Former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger remarked at the recent Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Singapore that the summit was a, quote, good beginning, unquote, for U.S. and China and both, quote, have to accept that a conflict between major technical powers of comparable capacities must not occur for the preservation of humanity, unquote. Counting Xi's Achievements The sixth plenary session, a closed-door meeting of China's top leaders, was held in Beijing from November 8 to 11. The plenum issued a, quote, historical resolution a type of historical document stating the party's achievements and future direction. This was only the third such resolution adopted in the Communist Party's history, the first under Mao Zedong and the second under Deng Xiaoping. The plenum further solidifies Xi's position ahead of next year's leadership reshuffle. Deflation Exporter No More China's PPI index rose 13.5% in October from a year ago, a record rise since the data became available in 1993. CPI also increased by 1.5%, indicating that factory prices are beginning to flow through to consumers. China has traditionally been seen to export deflation to the rest of the world, but this may no longer be true going forward. U.S. and China agree on climate change. China and the United States agreed to bolster cooperation on climate change at the COP26 Climate Summit in Glasgow. The countries announced they will work together towards limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius as set out in the 2015 Paris Agreement. Although the agreement was viewed as a surprise, Wang Kakhoi noted the possibility of cooperation in this area in his earlier APS CIO note, It's Geopolitics, Comrade. China Protects Its Data The Cyberspace Administration for China released draft rules for companies that list in Hong Kong whereby IPOs would need to undergo a cybersecurity review on national security grounds. The new rule may make it more difficult for Chinese companies that were looking for an easier offshore alternative to foreign listings. However, the regulation in Hong Kong is separate from more stringent rules for foreign markets. And now, the APS China Monthly. Burning Issues of 2022 by Wong Kok Hoi 1. 
Is China still investable? Common Prosperity Doctrine: The End of Prosperity. The recent buzzword, common prosperity, and the hundreds of commentaries and analytical essays on common prosperity have led many investors to conclude that China is no longer investable. The titles of recent reports alone are enough to evoke fears of China returning to the old communal system of organizing economic activities. With these alarming titles, no wonder the catchphrase "common prosperity" conjures up images of massive wealth redistribution and of a quote long march back to the days of Maoism. If President Xi Jinping and the CCP are determined to steer China back to the years of Marxism-Leninism for the second time, and this time with a stronger Robin Hood mindset, we will have no other way but to conclude that China is no longer investable. But is it? Mao Zedong had used the term "common prosperity" in the 1950s, followed by Deng in the 1980s. And she in the 2010s, but is Xi's CP doctrine the same as Mao's CP ideology? I am still being asked regularly as to whether China is investable under Xi's CP doctrine. I believe common prosperity and the accompanying issue, quote, "Is China investable?" will continue to be the number one investment issue for 2022. Media. In this era of the internet, the media has become more omnipresent but less omniscient, and therein lies a problem. It can paint a bull to look like a bear, portray a lousy company as tomorrow's icon, exalt a deceitful founder as a visionary entrepreneur. A principal problem with media today is that it carries and propagates three types of news: truths, half-truths, and lies, sometimes unintended. This confuses investors, and paradoxically, the more you read, the more confused you will be. The illusion of truth. Psychologists theorize that a lie repeated often enough becomes the truth. They call it the illusion of truth. Don't despair. Liza Fazio of Vanderbilt University offers hope, as her experiments show that human rationality can beat it by not taking shortcuts, by double-checking the facts, and using the power of reasoning. Encouraged by her findings, I will attempt to address the issue of China's investability not just for the next two or three years. But for a decade and beyond, history. It may be useful to learn from China's history of modernization. Economists generally believed China's first major attempt at modernization started in 1978 with Deng Xiaoping's policies of opening up and reform. In my view. China's first serious attempt at modernization dates to as far back as 1886. This is not to take away any credit from Deng's clarity of vision and colossal contribution to China's success, but to predict the party's plans for China from here. 
The early reform-minded pragmatists knew what they had to do to catch up with the developed world and, amongst others, formulated policies to modernize the economy, legal system, educational system, the military, etc. China's first reform advocates include Kang Yuwei, Zhang Zidong, Yuan Shikai, Li Hongzong, Liu Kuyi, etc., who sent thousands of officials to developed countries to learn, especially Japan. Subsequently, Yuan Shikai and Sun Yat-sen, whom we are more familiar with and both Japan-educated, emerged. China's first attempt at modernization failed dismally for a number of reasons. One chief reason was the lack of strong leadership and dueling political factions, made worse by the regional warlords, a weak emperor in Guangzhou, and the Manchu-Han divide. Yuan Shikai and Sun Yat-sen were generally accepted as the two foremost Chinese political leaders, but they often did not see eye-to-eye on strategies and policies. From 1901 to 1949, China was beset by chaos, war, weak industries, and poverty. Chiang Kai-shek and Zhou Enlai, two emerging leaders also educated in Japan, also failed to unite the country. Even after Mao succeeded in uniting China in 1949, China's modernization plan using Marxist theories also failed miserably. The colossal failures from its early modernization plans resulted in phenomenal costs and misfortune to China in terms of lives lost, starvation, and enormous suffering for almost a hundred years. This disaster is not lost on Chinese people, the CCP, and the government. It was certainly not lost on one man, Deng Xiaoping. This part of China's history is critical in understanding the psyche of not just Deng Xiaoping, but also today's party cadres and government officials and the Chinese people, and in my view, probably provides the best hint of how China will chart its future and its governance from here. Deng's iron will and unwavering resolve led him to do what he must to ensure that China must not fail again when he became the paramount leader in 1978. Knowing the critical importance of a united China, he must have concluded that China first and foremost needed a strong center and minimal political division to succeed in its rejuvenation and modernization plan. He also must have known that sending tanks to quell the student-led pro-democracy demonstrations and end the occupation of Tiananmen Square would be an unpopular move, but must have deemed it necessary to ensure stability. Deng's first-hand experience and grasp of the causes of the failure of the earlier reform-minded nationalists must have reinforced his determination not to make the same mistakes twice. Resoluteness in Nation Building Given China's history, we must not underestimate the party and the government's resoluteness in pressing ahead with its modernization program, unless there are compelling reasons for them to not do so. 
After so many failures and overcoming so many arduous challenges in the past to reach a level of prosperity that it had never enjoyed in a thousand years or more, why should they now seek to abandon a system that has worked so phenomenally well for the nation and its citizenry? It is unthinkable to think that the party and the government now wants to change course. Even if they do, what is the new path? Taking billions from the wealthy and giving it to the poor is certainly not the way forward. As most senior party cadres and government officials are engineers by training, they will rarely pull down a bridge without a plan in hand to build a superior one to replace it. In my assessment, the party and the government's determination to press ahead with its modernization program is as strong as ever. This is also the impression I received with my conversation with two mid-level Shanghai government officials. One highly respected senior manager in Beijing told me that government officials today are smart and highly competent. He recently received several high-ranking provincial government officials who flew in, obtained all the answers to the questions prepared in advance, and flew home declining the company's invitation to stay for dinner. To his mind, policymakers are clear-minded about what the future path should be. The Zhichong High Quality Development and Common Prosperity Plan The Zhichong Plan arguably provides the best clue about the future direction in which the party and the government wants to steer the nation. The plan states in detail the 118 areas in which China will build and develop a globally competitive, technologically advanced economy, minimize systemic risks by flushing out the excesses in the economy, protecting and preserving a green and sustainable ecological environment, building a harmonious, stable, and happy society, building a corruption-free and people-oriented political system, and so on. Not a return to the failed Marxist-Leninist economic system. Yes, common prosperity might have been mentioned regularly in official speeches and documents this year, but what they meant is creating an even bigger pie so that most can have a bigger slice. It is astonishing how most analysts seem to have missed 99% of the plan that is focused on high-quality development and their fascination and obsession with the 1% on common prosperity is equally baffling. In the lengthy 24,000-word document of the 6th plenary session of the 19th Central Committee on November 11th, the words rejuvenation and national rejuvenation were mentioned 32 times and 25 times, respectively, against just 8 mentions of common prosperity. It is another hint into the minds of policymakers. Having read this plan and the State Council Guiding Plan, I will say with confidence that the plan is a blueprint to build a supermodern nation, a high-quality, technologically advanced economy, a fair, harmonious, and happy society, and a stable and corruption-free political system. It is so ambitious that two prominent economists opined that it might take as long as a hundred years to achieve most of the goals. Common Prosperity on the Ground 
In the last 11 weeks, I had met with founders, CEOs, and senior management when I visited more than 25 listed companies in Shanghai, Beijing, and Shenzhen, plus a special trip to Zhejiang's provincial capital, Hangzhou. Albeit a small sample size, it has reinforced my view that the entrepreneurs in China today are some of the best in Asia. More importantly, they feel that they are just batting in the third or fourth inning, with much more to do. They are also immensely confident in their ability to finish much stronger. Almost every of them have big plans to expand. Bear in mind that they are regularly in contact with their local party cadres and government officials. This information must also be regularly fed to Beijing. This would not make sense if they had the premonition that the party and government are eyeing their wealth. Huge capital outflows would have taken place and the renminbi exchange rate would have collapsed. So far, no evidence of that except for the scary reports in the English language media. On common prosperity, I asked the business leaders this cheeky question, quote, Have you been invited to afternoon tea by your local government officials and asked about your intended contribution to the common prosperity program to appease Xi? One politically connected multi-billionaire put it succinctly, quote, Common prosperity is not about equal wealth distribution as propounded in socialism. It is about making a larger pie so that there is more to share. It is also about helping the working class to upgrade their skills so that they can earn more. It is also about creating opportunities, building better infrastructure for instance, in the rural areas so that the peasants can do more and increase their income." Unquote. This is representative of the sentiment among his peers. It did not surprise me when none of their faces showed stress or anxiety when asked the question. Chinese Entrepreneurial DNA Smash it or use it Chinese political leaders have always affirmed that the country must adhere to Marxism-Leninism with Chinese characteristics to develop the country. What do they really mean? Karl Marx himself had repeatedly said capitalists had no place in his ideal economic system because he considered them exploiters of the proletariat class workers. That was indeed the case for the most part of the Industrial Revolution, but circumstances have improved since, though not perfect yet. Workers may still be exploited in one form or another, but have also benefited tremendously from the current capitalist system. The major weakness of capitalism is perhaps this pursuit of maximum profits, which has led to sometimes unscrupulous exploitation, not just of workers, but also of regulatory ambiguity, degradation of the environment, etc. President Xi had stated that modern socialism is not about class struggle, but added that the party should do more to protect workers' rights and that strong action be taken against companies that have crossed the line. We do not believe that there is any intent to abandon the current system for a new system, as feared in some quarters. 
Regardless of the appeal of Marxist-Leninist or Maoist ideology to the right wing, the empirical evidence in communist China in the last three or four decades has shown that capitalism has drawn out the best from the entrepreneurial DNA of the Chinese. The private economy has contributed more than 50% of China's total tax revenue, more than 60% of gross domestic product, more than 70% of China's technological innovation, more than 80% of urban development, and makes up more than 90% of market entities, said Vice Premier Liu He in a September 2021 speech. Metaphorically speaking, why would Beijing now want to kill the proverbial goose that lays the golden eggs? The big question is, quote, why would their best brains in Beijing almost overnight believe that the time is ripe for a new system? Almost every senior party cadre and top government official would have spent 25 to 40 years in government before getting promoted to their current position. They know better than anyone else that a system to smash the entrepreneurial DNA, target the wealth of their successful entrepreneurs, drive them to other countries, would certainly decimate China's industries and eventually bring economic ruin and chaos to the country. It bears repeating the point I made in Black, White, or Healthy Cat of August 2021 that China's regulations are behind the curve when compared to most developed countries, and now they are catching up. The big tech companies are targeted not because they have made billions or pose a threat to the party, but because they have violated laws and regulations. Seriously, can Jack Ma or Pony Ma topple the party? Nothing has changed. In conclusion, there is no evidence whatsoever in China's policy documents, rumblings on the ground, or volatility in the foreign exchange market to suggest that China has changed or is about to change course. Why should they? In my assessment, the same ingredients, political stability, well-planned, forward-looking policies, high-quality infrastructure, entrepreneurship, diligent and hungry workers that have made China so phenomenally successful remain unchanged. If the factors for development remain in place, coupled with Beijing's ambition to build a super-modern China, there is no other way but to conclude that China is still very investable. I would go on to say that the next generation of entrepreneurs would outdo this generation because they will be more educated, have a global outlook, have access to ample capital, and have a huge domestic market to sell into. 2. Time to buy internet icons? Alibaba, Tencent, JD.com, PDD, Meituan, DD, and fintech company Lufax have all declined 40-60%. to 60%. I have been asked numerous times whether it is time to buy. At PE multiples of 20 times, they argue that valuations for Alibaba and Tencent are at all-time lows. I disagree for three major reasons. 1. 
regulations will be increasingly stringent. For instance, a consultation paper for a new anti-monopoly law covering 35 areas was released on October 23rd, and it is intended to replace the old one enacted in 2008. A first read shows that many past practices such as exclusive arrangements, predatory pricing, inadequate customer data privacy, discriminatory prices, subsidy pricing, anti-competitive practices, disorderly fundraising, and worker exploitation, including low wages and super long work hours, etc., will be made illegal. Supervision will be tightened and penalties increased. It is also proposed that regulators can take as long as 180 days in their investigations of improper or illicit activities. The upshot is that the old days of doing whatever you like to make the extra dollar are over. 2. Their business models are impaired. Many which pay low wages to the bulk of their workforce, for instance, will see soaring labor costs. A worker at leading courier company Shung Feng told me that he works 16 hours a day for less than USD 2000 a month, often without any off days the entire week. Despite working 15 years for this company, he receives the minimum medical insurance coverage and pension benefits. Newer workers receive half his salary and do not receive any fringe benefits because they are contracted as part-time or outsourced workers, although they work full-time. Didi's case was even more extreme. It took full advantage of its duopolistic position by taking over 30% of drivers' takings. As they were forced to the wall, drivers banded together and protested all the way to Beijing. The company has been adjusting its commission rate since June, such that an upper limit of about 20% for the industry won't have a lot of impact on Didi, according to an analyst quoted in the South China Morning Post report in August. The days of fintech companies charging 30 to 40% interest rates are also over. There are many more examples. 3. Raising huge amounts of fresh capital every year will be challenging from here. It may require regulatory approval, in which case the likelihood will be low. Regulators have publicly expressed disdain for the disorderly expansion and use of capital by these companies. Investors have been burned badly in the past year. The old business model of raising fresh capital every year to grow GMV and revenue aggressively, tell a good story, any story, and push up share prices, will not work anymore. Talking about stories, JD had publicly announced numerous ambitious plans with details, such as their declaration at the 2018 World Economic Forum in Davos to build a drone network across China with more than 10,000 drone airports, reportedly at a cost of almost USD 900 million. There was also a plan to build a stable of a million convenience stores within five years of 2017. As far as we know, nothing has happened, 
Such stories get investors excited, especially American retail investors. And regulators had done nothing about such blatant misinformation. Why China e-commerce stocks listed in the U.S. have outperformed the domestically listed ones by eye-popping margins would need an explanation. A conspicuous reason is the grandiose expectations for just about almost anything that is China-related by Wall Street investors in recent years, made worse by the exuberant behavior further fueled by ample Wall Street liquidity. It is interesting to see how some of these companies transform their business models in the new regulatory regime and capital markets environment. The above table of key financial data over the last five years of six major internet companies do give you a reasonably good sense of what lies ahead for them. All of them had raised huge sums of fresh capital to gobble up smaller rivals and adjacent companies in recent years. Many have been selling products or offering services at losses in order to increase market share. Whether such tactics are allowed in the tougher regulatory regime is now highly uncertain. Except for Tencent and Alibaba, the two monopolistic powers in their respective businesses, the rest had barely deployed productively the massive amounts of capital raised. Their ROAs had been dismal. Is it realistic to expect their ROAs to improve when penetration rates are peaking? when wages and compliance costs must inevitably rise, when monopolistic and duopolistic profits will evaporate, they will also no longer enjoy government incentives such as low tax rates, cheap land, and government grants. All in all, I believe it is way too early to buy internet stocks just because the stock prices have declined because earnings are likely to contract for several years, and hence the derating will continue. 3. China's Emerging Icons If internet icons are history, what will be the new icons? In our assessment, many of the new ones will be found in the hardware tech, industrial and software sectors from factory automation equipment makers, to photovoltaic equipment manufacturers, to satellite and AI-based topography data and mapping companies, to defense equipment companies, and innovative companies. We should be able to find more of them in high-tech sectors such as semiconductors, AI, bioscience, cybersecurity, big data, renewable energy, etc. In China's Grand Vision Plan, officially known as the Zhejiang High Quality Development and Common Prosperity Plan, it is categorically stated in the plan that China must focus on technology and innovation in order to realize its dream of rejuvenating and modernizing the nation. Therefore, tech, industrial, and software companies sit well with the national agenda. Except for a few tech companies like Huawei and Hikvision, China's icons had been in the internet space. I am reluctant to call them tech icons because the technological substance in many of them is low. Why investors label JD or PDD as tech companies is baffling, because selling apples, cabbages, 
and handphones online is barely techy at all. One of China's greatest strengths is manufacturing. Many manufacturing companies had been in the catch-up mode for more than two decades. This time, I detected a quantum jump in the confidence of many manufacturers. One senior executive in factory automation equipment told me that they had struggled in the past to secure orders from even Chinese companies, not to mention foreign ones, because their technology was inferior. Just in the last two or three years, they have caught up and now receive orders from almost every manufacturing industry in China. They are also beginning to make inroads into overseas markets. His parting remark was that they are confident of surpassing their foreign peers in a few years. China has been known as the factory of the world, but their manufactured products are primarily low-value-add products. Going forward, we can expect more high-value-add products to be manufactured in China. This is where we will devote much more of our research resources. We have already started adding several new names to our portfolios after the company visits and plan to add another five to eight names over the next six months. Four, sinking Sino-U.S. trade relations. The Sino-U.S. trade deal will expire in February. We had opined that it was a political deal done more for former U.S. President Donald Trump to improve his re-election chances. Our assessment was based on the fact that substantial trade issues were not addressed in the trade deal. Some 21 months into the deal, it is clear that the targets are unlikely to be met. Surprisingly, Washington has yet to make a big deal out of it. Beijing must have finally reached the conclusion that the Biden administration would not soften the position they inherited from Trump. In fact, President Joe Biden's cabinet has followed up its rhetoric with more tough action. This has forced China to accelerate its plans to go all out to develop its own technology. For instance, a department of semiconductors has been set up in several top Chinese universities. In our assessment, it is academic whether or not there will be a new Sino-U.S. trade deal to replace the existing one, because there would likely be little substance in it, just like the first one. Most likely, there will not be one as negotiations have not even started. Be that as it may, Rocky Sino-U.S. trade relations will continue to threaten not just the economies of China and the U.S., but also the rest of the world. A big worry is that a misstep can escalate the ongoing trade war into a full-fledged one. 5. A Tale of Two Bubbles Following the sharp economic contractions and stock market collapses caused by the outbreak of COVID-19, Central banks all over the world pumped gigantic amounts of liquidity into their economies and capital markets to resuscitate their economies and stabilize shell-shocked mines in their capital markets. Surprisingly, the People's Bank of China started to tighten liquidity within six months, arguing that COVID-19 would be a multi-year problem, and therefore using monetary tools to fight it was inappropriate. 
What the PBOC had not said was their worry that injection of additional liquidity would be tantamount to further inflating the housing and equity market bubbles. A product of that thinking was the drastic deleveraging policy hammered out in the form of three red lines for the property market. It forced property developers to deleverage to preset tight limits. To the PBOC, it seems prudent to act sooner rather than later as bursting bubbles can pose systemic risks to the financial system and create a mess in the economy. In their calculations, it is not necessarily a bad idea for a certain number of companies to go bust. One politically connected and highly regarded Beijing-based property developer told me that we may have to expect a third of the top 50 developers to go under in the worst-case scenario. When pressed on whether that this is also the thinking of policymakers, he was noncommittal. But he did say that an Evergrande bankruptcy will pose no systemic risk whatsoever. Across the Pacific Ocean, the liquidity tap is still open and gushing. As an investor who had experienced firsthand the Japanese property market meltdown and the stock market crash, I wonder whether Jerome Powell should have trodden more cautiously this year, especially when there was ample evidence in the second half of the year pointing to structural inflation. Going by the experience of markets in the past 100 years and longer, inflated financial asset prices, fueled by liquidity, had often affected unintended, painful consequences. This is something investors will have to watch closely in 2022 as the ripple effects of volatility will certainly be felt, not just across the Pacific Ocean, but also the Atlantic Ocean, because the U.S. is still the largest economy in the world. Wong Kok Hoi is the founder and CIO of APS Asset Management. He has 40 years of investment experience, including CIO at City Trust Japan, Senior PM at Citibank Hong Kong, and Senior Investment Officer of GIC. He was the recipient of the Monbushu Scholarship in Japan and graduated with a Bachelor of Commerce degree from Hitushubashi University, 1981. Mr. Wong also completed the Investment Appraisal and Management Program at Harvard University, 1990.